When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Happy June to all who celebrate. And happy Pride Month to all who celebrate. Indeed. So yes, we are we are into something resembling summer. We are out of the inevitable chaos of April and May. So everything's going to be totally chill and there's going to be no TV news and we can just sort of kick back and relax, right? Sure. It's also <laughs> opposite day, apparently. Every day is opposite day, Leslie. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, well, lots going on to get to this week. And as usual, we're going to start off with headlines. Number one. Leading off, The Good Fight will come to an end with its sixth and final season due in September on Paramount+. Plus. Dan, I know this is a show that you've loved, well, pretty much from the get-go. Yeah, it's a show that I like uh, an extreme amount and a show that has never really gotten its due in large part because of, well, the Paramount Plus of it all and just people not quite understanding what it was. And so people didn't quite get the... It's a Good Wife spinoff, but then it really had very little to do with The Good Wife. So this is one of those things where I always tell people, sure, you can just kind of check in anytime you want. And uh, then they don't. And so whatever. It's a, a real shame that the show has gotten no particular awards attention. Certainly, Christine Baranski, if nothing else, should have a number of Emmy nominations for the show. But, you know, it's... Uh, it's that there's a lot of TV, Leslie. I, I feel as if that's probably the bottom line on the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard you say that a couple of times. Is that your new drinking game on the show, Dan? No, no, no. It's just true. It's it's just true, regardless of what it is. It is absolutely simply sad, but true. Uh, also on the headline front, Apple has renewed Slow Horses for two additional seasons, taking the Gary Oldman-led spy drama up through a fourth installment. Uh, when I published my review of Slow Horses, there was already a teaser for the next group of episodes based on the next book in the literary series, and uh, Apple TV was very unhappy with me when I attempted to call what was coming up the second season. So regardless, there are going to be four chapters that are based on four of the books in the series, whatever you want to call them, if you want to call them seasons, because that's what TV shows, you know, call their different installments. Sure, fine. I just don't want to get in trouble with Apple TV on that one. Yeah, I mean, 
unless they basically pick this up as at 20 episodes per season and then are splitting it into two different <laughs> drops because that's just a way to avoid giving people oh, salary a hundred a hundred percent that's what it is i mean that's and that is why when i attempted to say a second season has already been ordered and will be coming soon i was told it was definitely not a second season even though it's completely and totally a second season so whatever you want to call it it really doesn't matter guess what we are not attorneys it is none of our business apple tv can promote things how they want I like slow horses, so that's fine by me regardless. Yeah, and I like calling it as I see it, so there you go. Totally. Um, in other news, lots of cast departures going on this week. Tim Robbins and Leslie Mann have dropped out of the Amazon thriller The Power. Original Fear the Walking Dead star Alicia Debman Carey has also signed off of the AMC drama after a seven-season run. She posted a tearful and heartfelt note to fans on her Instagram. Elsewhere, Alexis Bledel has departed Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale after four seasons. And Anthony Anderson has walked away from NBC's Law & Order revival, where he had only signed a one-season deal to reprise his original character from the series. So, tis the season. Options are expiring. People are changing their minds with what they want to do. Coming to the end of their original runs, like uh, you know, on The Walking Dead, I think she probably had a six-season deal and then probably signed on for one more for season seven. But yeah, no real surprises here, except maybe Alexis Bledel. But then again, she started as a guest star and I think won an Emmy, if memory serves, and then was promoted to series regular. And then went back to guest star and then went back to series regular. There was a lot of shifting in her capacity on the show, so not exactly hugely shocking. Uh, what I would say is you, would, you, you say it is the season, and what it usually is is the recasting on broadcast stuff season. And I think it's actually reflective of the thing that we've talked about 175 times about the year-round scheduling. And if you would like to tell the kids about how this is now a year-round scheduling situation, that's totally fine, too. But this is totally usually the period at which shows that were picked up last week start recasting this week. And it's funny not to see that being where the news is here. So... Well, yeah, but and you also still, yes, year-round programming is obviously here to stay, not just on, on broadcast, which is finally joining the game, but on cable, premium cable and streaming. But the other piece that's interesting, not interesting, but, but the other part that you should know is cast options have a way of expiring either the end of, of May or the end of June, depending on when they were signed. But that's typically when those deals expire. So not not super surprising to see a lot of these departures. But I don't know what's going on with the power, though, with Tim Robbins and Leslie Mann dropping out of that. Yeah, that so. one. That one's strange because that one was ordered a long time ago. They've shot some amount of it, and so yeah, that that one is a little bit odder than a couple of the other ones. But so it goes. And Breck Gelman will star in Entitled, a Showtime comedy series from the producers of Fleabag. Gelman, of course, was a co-star on Fleabag, and. Got an awful lot of screen time. Well, everyone got a lot of screen time, but he got even more screen time than usual on the current season of Stranger Things that you might have heard premiered last week, featuring episodes that you might have heard were really long. Number two. Up second, the calendar has turned to June, so guess what time it is, kids? It's a June TV preview segment. As usual, I'm going to run through some of the bigger titles launching, uh, and I'm going to do this organized alphabetically by platform. So up first, AMC has Dark Winds, which there's an excellent THR cover story by our colleague Rebecca Keegan out now on THR.com. And then this is going to hurt on AMC's streaming counterpart, AMC+. Plus. Over at Apple, you've got new seasons of Physical and For All Mankind and the debut of Maya Rudolph comedy Loot. 
Amazon has the return of The Boys, an animated comedy Fairfax, and the debut of The Summer, I Turn Pretty, and Drama The Lake. Over at Disney+, Plus, you've got Miss Marvel, the latest installment in the MCU. HBO's got Irma Vep and the new season of Westworld, which hasn't aired since 1974. Um, over at Hulu, you've got former Fox drama The Orville, which makes its debut on the Disney streamer called New Horizons. And Love, Victor arrives for its final season on both Hulu and Disney+, Plus, where it was originally evicted for being not family-friendly enough, which is complete and total bullshit as we lay into Pride Month. And Hulu also has the FX series The Bear and the return of Only Murders in the Building. Netflix has, again, a full slate with Borgen, Floor is Lava, My Time with David Letterman, the final season of Peaky Blinders, First Kill, the Melissa McCarthy, uh, Ben Falcone comedy, God's Favorite Idiot, the new Iron Chef, and of course, the highly anticipated season of Umbrella Academy. Over on OWN, former CBS drama All Rise arrives on cable. Paramount Plus debuts the new season of Robert and Michelle King's Evil and the new series Players. Over at Peacock, you have the Stephen Dunn's reimagining of the groundbreaking drama Queer as Folk, plus season two of Rutherford Falls. At Showtime, you've got The Shy. Over at Stars, you've got the new season of P-Valley, one of my favorites, and then the debut of Becoming Elizabeth. And wrapping up on basic cable, TNT has the final season of Animal Kingdom as the cable network continues to, to thin its herd of scripted originals. Dan, there's a lot of different stuff here. What immediately strikes me is that the new season of Westworld is launching outside of the Emmy window, which means it'll be for Emmys, what, 2023? Seems like the correct math, if not 2022. Uh, yeah, I, I certainly, like, we've talked about all of the stuff that was attempting to sneak in under the Emmy eligibility window, which ended on May 31st, of course. What I do find notable here is that it's not as if good TV, though, has magically stopped. So you certainly could have had this become kind of the equivalent of what, I don't know, what January and September used to be on the movie calendar, where it was simply a dumping zone. I, I think without any question, that is not what this ends up being. Uh, if you look at these shows, there are a couple shows that were in my top 10 from last year. So you have both For All Mankind on Apple TV and uh, Paramount Plus is Evil. Those are two shows that were in my top 10 last year and that are among the best shows on TV. So that's high quality. Uh, you mentioned P-Valley, which was in my top 10 two years ago. So there's another tremendous show. And then there are a bunch of other shows that are other people's favorites, if not necessarily mine. There are definitely enough people who love The Boys, for example. There are apparently and allegedly people who who really, really love Westworld. Um, I don't know what to say about that, but so it goes. Everyone should in, everyone should get their jollies out of whatever they get their jollies out of. Uh, Westworld is not where I get my jollies, and definitely coming off of a Stranger Things season in which those episodes were 70-plus minutes all the way up to 98 minutes, I, I really look forward to seeing what HBO is going to let the Westworld team get away with, because that's one of those shows where even 50-minute episodes feel as if they're 90 minutes sometimes. So That show does feel like a lot of work, Dan. It is a tremendous amount of work. and if Not I just to make it, but to watch it. Oh, no, no. It's, a, it's, it's much more work to make it. I am not so naive as to think otherwise, uh, because mostly when I watch it, I am sitting on my ass. On the other hand, it is still a lot of work to pay attention to and remember where things were and remember where things were two years ago when episodes last aired 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, anyway, some people love that show. If you love the show, you're probably looking forward to it. And if you're not, you'll just make funny jokes about, hey, that show's still on. So, But there are also a lot of shows that I feel like probably have a lot of potential. Uh, so you mentioned Loot. That is one that I've heard people talking enthusiastically about. It's uh, co-created by former TV's top five guests, Alan Yang, and it's got a tremendous amount of talent associated uh, by Rudolph and uh, Michaela Rodriguez, et cetera, et cetera. Michaela J. Rodriguez. Michaela J. Rodriguez. Formerly known as MJ Rodriguez and of the fabulous and gone too soon FX drama Pose. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah. And, you know, my Rudolph has always been one of those people who who is a star, but really and truly could use an actual, genuine, full on star vehicle that was big and all her and all that. So we'll see if this is it. You know, you never know for sure. Uh, Dark Winds looks interesting. It's got Tony Hillerman's source material. It's got a lot of talent behind the camera. It's got a lead role for Zon McLaren, who, of course, was so fantastic on the second or third season of Fargo and was really, really, really great also in Reservation Dogs, which if you haven't watched Reservation Dogs, you should watch Reservation Dogs because it's a great show. Uh, and then you're just looking at, at so many other shows. You mentioned The Bear, and that's FX or FX on Hulu or Hulu produced by FX or whatever. Uh, you didn't mention The Old Man, which is also um, FX, and that's the Jeff Bridges hitman, aging hitman, aging CIA, whatever it is. It's hard to tell even within the show. Uh, but anyway, it's the Jeff Bridges ailing, aging CIA or Hitman or whatever drama also features John Lithgow and a bunch of really, really talented people. So that's a thing to to watch. And then you're looking at things like Players on Paramount+. Plus. I really loved American Vandal, and it's from the creators of American Vandal. And American Vandal was one of those shows that that Netflix did wrong because it wasn't a Netflix-owned show, and then it got canceled after two seasons, and it didn't need to be. And so I hope that this will prove that the creators of that show are extremely talented people on their own. Uh, Only Murders in the Building was a favorite last season. It didn't make my top 10, but I know it made a lot of people's top 10s, and definitely they've added a lot of interesting people to the cast. So Shirley MacLaine, Cara Delevingne, depending on how interesting you find either of those people. And then, of course, you have the core cast. So and it's a show that was a show that really did a very good job of telling a contained story in the first season. I thought the finale resolved the mystery of that first season extremely well. And it did set up a second season. Well, it'll just be interesting to see how good the follow up you know, is. Uh, this is not one of those Russian doll type situations where there didn't seem to be any reason at all for a second season. There did. We'll just see if they're able to do it as well. Uh, yeah, so, so many, so many different interesting things. And a lot of, you know, I mentioned Westworld is a show that I know a lot of people like significantly more than I do. I mentioned The Boys is a show that I'm mostly fine with, but, and I'll talk more about that in Critics Corner, talk more about a few of these in Critics Corner, that, you know, definitely people like more than I do. Physical with Rose Byrne on Apple TV Plus, it premiered last year. I thought for the most part it was fairly dismal, but Rose Byrne made it consistently watchable. And I thought that the finale of that show moved in the direction of a show that I was more interested in than the show that I spent most of the first season watching. And yet I have not gotten anywhere near my screeners yet for that show. So 
if you're a fan of physical, maybe you'll be excited about that. Uh, yeah, so many, so many things this month, but thankfully, perhaps a tiny bit more quiet. And again, even talking about sort of the the things that are beloved, you know, Netflix with both Peaky Blinders and Borgen. Borgen is a show that's been eternally on my need to watch list. Never had the time. Uh, Peaky Blinders is a show that has been on my list and I've managed to make it through two seasons of that. But it's such a slow going, unfortunately, just because there's too much other stuff. But I know that for some people, those shows and at least in the case of Peaky Blinders, their last season will be very, very important in the month. Lots and lots of TV in June. But Leslie will be watching baseball. Uh, yeah, I'll be watching baseball. And I've also already seen uh, Peacock's Queer as Folk. Um, they did just add a warning to card for that series because it does the jumping off point uh, for the entire season is a nightclub shooting similar to Pulse. And producers, including creator Stephen Dunn, met with Pulse survivors, many of whom actually served as consultants on the show. If you, like me, are a diehard fan of both Russell T. Davies' original as well as the Showtime version of Queer's Folk, this is a great follow-up. Uh, you know, they, they're calling it a reimagining because it does have some similarities. The club is called Babylon, etc. But it does, it is very 2022. Um, it's also very good. If uh, Again, I'm not a critic, so there's your shot for the, <laughs> for the episode. But um, it's easily one of my, the favorite, my favorite things that I've seen this year. And of course, P-Valley season two. Like, I love season one. You can go back and listen to our very first interview with Katori Hall from July 17th, 2020. That was episode 78, where you can hear me fawn all over season one. And guess who's our showrunner spotlight this week? Katori Hall for season two of P-Valley. Yeah, I think she might be, Dan, our very first repeat showrunner to who's coming in to preview the new season. And obviously we had Bill Lawrence for Ted Lasso, but he came in for finale for season two. You'd like putting asterisks on things. So for example, we did have the guys from Cobra Kai to do the last two seasons. That is true. Uh, right. But they, but they were not there to do the first two seasons. So it's uh, look, our late, we, uh, maybe a, our second repeat showrunner. It's, All um, right. I'm going to stop. <laughs> one, of the, one of the few showrunners we've had come in for every season. Of we Netflix. are having more repeat showrunners as we go forward because we are discovering the people who we like talking to. And we like talking to Katori Hall. We're going to do it in about, say, two segments. Well, before we get to Katori Hall, up third. Number three. It's time to take a look at what's coming up at the ATX Television Festival. Dan is on his way to Austin this week for the festival where he'll, he will be moderating and appearing on a few themed panels. The 11th annual festival makes its return to in-person events in Texas and runs from June 2nd through June 5th. This year's festival features reunions with the cast and creators of Parenthood and Scrubs. But honestly, it's a lot of the themed panels that often produce some of the best conversations. So, Dan, what's on your ATX dance card you know, outside of barbecue and queso? Uh, definitely barbecue, queso, and trying to avoid getting COVID are the top three things on my ATX dance card. But then there are plenty of other things as well, because really and truly, the ATX TV festival is is one of our, our favorite respective Things. And so after two years of being entirely virtual, and I moderated a bunch of virtual panels for them as well, and that was generally fun, uh, it is good to be back in person, even if 
there's still a global pandemic happening. And even if Texas is still Texas, uh, but the people who come to ATX and the organizers of the ATX TV festival, they're good people. So happy to support them. Yeah. And you can go back and listen to our episode. That would be episode 25 from June, 2019. Jesus. And here our interview with ATX festival co-founders, Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane. And that was also our first and only so far live podcast that was recorded from the stage at the festival. That was a lot of fun. That was that was a much, much earlier and much less formed version of TV's top five back then. I, I haven't gone back to listen to it, but I bet you it is hella quaint. We had a live mailbag, too, similar to almost similar to what we did last week, which was almost an entirely entire mailbag. episode. We, we did. And perhaps next year we will be back on the stage together to do yeah. another live. I'm not going to I'm not be I'm not there this year, kids. It's just, you know, I'm, a, I'm afraid of covid. So I'm, I'm staying at home. <laughs> Leslie will continue to be hiding under her stairwell. Um, yeah, me, me and Dick Wolf. Yeah. So, yes. So in terms of what I'm actually going to be doing there, uh, as of now, um, I'm going to be on a Thursday panel, which by the time you're listening to this, presumably will have been done and will have been awesome. So let's just assume it I was fantastic. I have no doubt, Dan. Anything it, that you're on is going to be awesome. And oh, one never knows. It, it, it will have been called What is Pop Culture? And it's still unclear who exactly is going to be on it. But again, Hopefully it will be fun and hopefully it will have been happening. Uh, but for the rest of the weekend on Friday, if you come to the Paramount Theater, you will hear me chatting with uh, Katja Herbers, Mike Coulter and Asif Manvi about evil. I mentioned in the last segment, it was in my top 10 last year and I've seen a few episodes of the new season and it is going strong. So I'm looking forward to chatting with those guys. Uh, also on Friday, at the Driscoll at 345 Central, I'm going to be talking with a fun assortment of uh, various and sundry executives from such places as Showtime, HBO, E1, Kilter Films, Rooster Teeth Productions, etc. Drop some names here, Dan. Drop some names. Who you got? I got Kara Buckley, the VP of Original Programming at HBO. She'll be there. Uh, Jacqueline uh, Sicario from E1. Several other people, lots of good people. He was doing a lot of good stuff right now. That, that's, uh, of course, Lombardo, former HBO uh, programming chief Michael Lombardo has been running E1. They've got a lot of interesting stuff coming up, uh, including the Dungeons and Dragons TV series in the works. They've got a lot of great movies in the works. It, it's really interesting to hear what Lombardo is doing over there. So, And they're, of course, behind The Rookie and its upcoming spinoff, The Rookie Feds. So the topic of that, the title of that one is Futurescape, a look at what's ahead in TV. And basically, we're going to be talking about where TV is going, going forward. It's a pretty broad and, topic. And Kilter Films, if I'm not sh mistaken, that's uh, Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan's production company, right? Uh, very possibly. That's Yeah, they have a big nine-figure overall deal with Amazon. Or they're doing the peripheral and a couple of other things that we haven't seen in a few years. <laughs> Written about a lot of them, but nothing's really launched. I will be much better uh, researched and prepared by the time I actually am sitting on that panel, which will be probably happening roughly as you're listening to this podcast. That is on Friday. And then on Sunday, if you stick around towards the end of the festival, I which am you always should because they have a great closing panel on Sunday with the Scrubs reunion. I'm not even sure if I'm going head to head with that here, but it is into the IP verse building a franchise, which features such esteemed panelists as Scott Gimple, former TV's top five guest, Scott Gimple, uh, the chief content officer of the Walking Dead universe, uh, Joby Harold, who is the head writer of the current Obi-Wan Kenobi TV show. Stay tuned for 
my comments on that. And a couple other fun people talking about basically the importance of IP, a topic that you might have heard Leslie talk about once or twice on the podcast. But so once, this is twice, a hundred. Well, let's see. This is episode 172. So yeah, probably about 172 times minimum. And then I'll be attending some panels, depending on time. You mentioned a couple of the reunions, and those sound like a lot of fun. There's a great-looking, justified creatives reunion that I am looking forward to. Uh, hopefully, they will talk a little bit about the spinoff series, etc., but also just remembering the good times of Justified, so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I believe the festival is honoring Sydney Sweeney, so maybe I'll go sit in for that, because... Why not? Uh, et cetera. So it should be a lot of fun. There's a big Dark Skies panel. We just talked about Dark Skies in the last segment. It is always a varied and interesting festival, and it is full of people who truly, truly love TV and love making TV in some cases. And I am looking forward to it, and I am looking forward to Brisket, and I am looking forward to Queso, and I am hoping I will not get COVID. And for more of the full schedule of events, head to atxfestival.com. Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. Number four. Katori Hall previously joined us on the podcast in July 2020 to promote the first season of Star's drama Pea Valley, based on her play Pussy Valley. That first season earned Gotham NAACP Image Award and a TCA Award nomination and was one of the most critically acclaimed shows of the year. Hall subsequently signed an overall deal with producers Lionsgate TV, and last year she won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for her play The Hot Wing King. Ahead of Friday's second season premiere of P-Valley, we're excited to have creator Katori Hall returning to the podcast. Welcome back, Katori. Oh my God, I am so happy to be back. <laughs> <laughs> and we're so happy to have you back. So in the intro that you didn't hear, because we haven't recorded it yet, but we will, I promise, we ran through a list of accolades for P-Valley and accolades that you've received since you were last on the podcast, including a little thing called the Pulitzer Prize. First <laughs> off, congratulations, congratulations to you. Oh, thank you, buddies. I appreciate that. Second off, as you look back on the past two years, how whiplashy does it all feel? <laughs> it's interesting. It doesn't feel so whiplashy because I'm the type of person who just stays in one spot. <laughs> so while like, you know, obviously, yes, the world actually seems a little bit more whiplashy than me feeling whiplashed or, or kind of like tossed and, and turned about. Um, but it's been it's been crazy. It's been crazy the past two years, just as an artist taking in everything, everything. Um, but in regards to just the work of it all, I'm really grateful that I actually have something to kind of pour into and, and to process the crazy <laughs> that's been happening um, to all of us, to be honest with you. 
Um, but I think because I literally am one of those people, maybe because it's the writer in me, I'm like, the only place I really go to is work in the grocery store. I'm so boring. (laughs) (laughs) Us as well. Certainly you will get no judgment whatsoever from, from us on that. Absolutely. But, you know, in, in the larger sense, you know, have the awards and the accolades that, that you've gotten both for the show and beyond, have that brought you any new freedoms or maybe giving, you know, more executives giving you the benefit of the doubt with stars and Lionsgate? Ooh, that's a really great question. Um, I'm not sure. I, for me, I think it's that thing of they don't matter to me, but they do matter to me. You know, an award, an accolade, a pat on the back. It doesn't necessarily help you write the the next thing. <laughs> it's about the past. It's about the thing that you just did, not the thing you're about to do. Um, but, you know, I did get a, a, a flood of love in my email box from all different types of people and obviously my executives. Um, And they kind of left me alone in the beginning anyway. (laughs) They were like, we can't tell this woman what to do. We don't know what she's doing. Let her do it because we can't tell her. Can't give her no notes. Um, But um, I pray that um, the second season of P-Valley really kind of drives the message home that I'm supposed to be here, my story, my stories are supposed to be here. And obviously, you know, a Pulitzer, you know, it, it probably helps. <laughs> <laughs> Letting people know that she deserves to be here. Let her be a showrunner. Come on, you guys. One um, of the, so- the freshest voices of our industry in the past couple of years, easily. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. That's a, that's a huge compliment coming from you guys. So, <laughs> Was there any point, though, at any conversation where you had to whip that out as a source of power when someone wanted to quibble about anything, whether it was budget, whether it was the direction of a storyline. Excuse yeah, like, me, have you have you seen what you I see got this, last this week? Pulitzer surprise in the back of my Zoom background right y'all, here? Y'all, I mean, I'd, it'd be on the edge of my tongue. It'd be on the edge. But usually they come to their senses and they, I don't have to whip it out. <laughs> It's just still good to have in your back pocket just in case you need it, though. (laughs) But I might have to. I might have to. I'm ready. My tongue. I'm ready. (laughs) So, okay, let's talk about season two of P-Valley. Because I can imagine that there were ways that you could have touched on COVID quickly and moved on. Or that you could have ignored COVID entirely and decided that's just not something that's compatible with the world of this show. Instead, not only did you keep the story in 2020 and sort of in our reality, but you used COVID as a central point of drama. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious how you came to the conclusion on the right amount to use it. And if there were points at which you thought that you actually could get away with a lesser covid season. It's interesting. You know, I remember where I was the moment Broadway shut down. Um, I actually was headed over to see my Pulitzer Prize winning play. <laughs> and unfortunately, the, the curtains came down. And, you know, theater is this business that is based on gathering, being in the same room with folks. And boom, all of a sudden, there was this long intermission and no one knew how long the intermission was going to be. So as I started thinking about P Valley and what to do and, you know, for the next season, because at that point in time, you know, 
there was no second season. <laughs> As a matter of fact, the show hadn't even dropped yet. But it just emblazoned itself uh, on my heart and on my mind, that feeling of not knowing if I was ever going to be able to be in the same room with an audience again as a theater maker. My livelihood immediately just stopped. And it was crazy because Tina, you know, the musical that I had done at, at that time, we were making a million dollars a week. And then to go from making a million dollars a week to zero dollars, I'm like, how in the hell am I going to, as a mother, you know, just take care of myself and my family? So, um, flash forward, P Valley does get a second season. It premieres in the midst of one of the craziest times in history, worldwide history, pandemic, you know, protests uh, against racial injustice, all of this stuff happening. And I just felt like, how could I not deal with COVID, especially in the world of stripping? Because it's very similar to theater. It's live performance. And it's like, I was in a place where, you know, I could figure it out a little bit. But then I put myself in the, the shoes of Mercedes, the platforms of, you know, Miss Mississippi, uh, thinking about what is Uncle Clifford? What would Uncle Clifford do? That's my bracelet. What would Uncle Clifford do <laughs> in the middle of COVID when you go from making all that Skrilla and then boom, one day you're, you, you, you're making nothing. Um, so I just kind of took my own lived experience and, and, and just poured it into uh, the second season of, uh, of Pink Valley just because I, I knew it so well. And then just, you know, because I'm a black person, right, in this world. And I'm looking at coronavirus, which is this virus that I think exposed a much more rampant virus, which is the, the virus of racial injustice. Um, and I just knew that I had to use this platform because millions of people had watched our show. We're still watching our show, right? And I knew that I had something to say about this universal experience from a very specific lens of black women down in the dirty delta who are stripping and you know you know surviving trying to make a, a way out of no way to me it was just the the perfect way to kind of create this chronicle of our time you know i often talk to people about history books and how you know a lot of people don't really know what happened to black folks at certain periods of of time and i just feel as though i want people to look back at the second season of p valley and be like yes it's fictional um but katori used fiction in order to tell the truth about what we went through it's this time capsule it's this chronicle um and like i said it it felt irresponsible to not um capture that story from the perspective of black dancers down in the Delta. Really, really well said. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting to discuss because there's been so many shows that have touched on it, like Grey's Anatomy did an excellent job of it, I think in season 18. And then for season 19, they just kind of dropped it and said, okay, we're moving beyond this. But I think, you know, yours was one of the first, you know, season two of P-Valley was one of the first shows that I saw, you know, this year anyway, that 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 is tackling it in such 
a real way. It's not just like a stray mask in the background or something like that, you know, but it, but it, it it's, you know, for lack of a better word, it is a character in, in this show. So, you know, we and then you start her, to see. We call COVID Miss Rona. That, that she is a character, like you just said. Yeah, yeah Miss Rona. Yeah. So, but, you know, you've also seen the reactions from the show's characters to the pandemic range from a strict ad- adherence to mandates and and restrictions to you know to covid skeptics you know and you you've spent so much time with with these characters in your te- head you know how easy was it for you to figure out how each individual character would approach miss rona it was so easy it was just because like i have been living with these folks for more than a decade in my head and all i got to do now is just watch them i don't never have to really put you know words into their mouths anymore i'm just like you know just a, a fly on the wall in uncle clifford's closet um so i knew uncle clifford was going to come through with the corona couture I knew she was just going to be wearing all kinds of, you know, plastic masks, fabric masks, masks that work, masks that don't work. Um, I knew Ernestine was, you know, Uncle Cliff's grandmama was not going to be dealing with it at all. <laughs> and she was like, she don't want people to wear masks around her. She don't quite believe in it. She thinks it's some ploy to, for uh, the white folks to keep the black folks inside, like, a you know, political control, um, which is, you know, that that's what some folks thought. Right. Um and then, yeah, it just it just ran the gamut. And the fact that, you know, I, I'm lucky that I actually spent the pandemic time during, um, I'd rather I was uh, in New York during kind of like the height. The, it was like the, we were the epicenter. And then I literally bought a house online <laughs> and moved to Atlanta. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of, out of New York. Oh, my God, it's apocalypse. I got to get out. So, boom, was in Atlanta down south. And nobody was wearing no masks. And so I was able to experience for myself this huge response to whatever mandate um, was out that week. You know how it changed like every day. Um, So I just, you know, it was, like I said, that that experience of just being an observer of of what was happening in the world and the, the characters feeling so real to me, like they feel real to other people. And just knowing like, okay, that person is going to wear one. This person is never going to wear one. This person is going to wear it, you know, on their ear and never, ever, you know, have it on completely. And that's what we see in the real world. I will say, though, that one of the um, uh, we had a conversation at Stars about like, oh, my God, people are going to have COVID fatigue by the time this comes out. And oh, my God, we're not going to be able to see the actors faces. And I was like, don't worry. It's set down south. You'll always see the actors faces because, you know, it was especially in Mississippi, you know, people just really weren't wearing masks. So the fourth episode in particular features a health department inspector. It is a great opening scene to that episode. And that character is able to articulate how difficult it is to do what they do at the pink within COVID restrictions. I'm curious as to how different the restrictions and the difficulties are between what they do in the pink and how you were sort of how they were able to tackle this versus what you guys were able to do with similar protocols mounting a TV production. Absolutely. So it was so crazy. We always felt like it was, you know, art was just reflecting life every day on set. And this whole thing of being six feet apart. Yeah. Right. Like how can you, um, 
do it for real if you are a business that's based on gathering and based on intimacy, right? And then when you're playing pretend, you're doing pretend intimacy, you're doing pretend <laughs> gathering, like all these rules and regulations. And at least, you know, on a set, you can test everybody. So, you know, like, oh, he it, you know, this week or she it this, you know, now. Um, but like in the real world, you don't know who got it. You, you know, every every day you're kind of like taking a risk. And so um, it, it was actually, I would say some days kind of traumatizing because oftentimes, you know, you want to come to work, especially if you're in the, the business of playing pretend and you want to escape your reality. But we kind of like double down, triple down, quadruple down on like, no, this is um, this is the thing that we're going to tell a story about. And aren't you lucky that you actually know, you know, like that someone's clean and clear because um, other people in the world, they don't know. Like I, I always would say um, I felt safer on set than I did at the grocery store because at least I knew everybody was wearing a KN95 mask. Yeah. And, you know, were there specific things that you were able to do in season one that just were not possible under this in this new normal of shooting during COVID? So I know a lot of people kind of talked about um, limiting crowds and, you know, our show in particular, like it's so it's based on intimacy, the illusion of intimacy, the performance of intimacy. So how can you do a show that is about that and, and be six feet apart? You know, like they joke in, in episode four, like ain't no way in hell you're going to be able to do a lap dance from six feet apart. Um, but somehow I think. It was about getting everyone on board um, with this idea in their minds that we could not completely like 100 percent mitigate, you know, the risk of COVID. It you know, you can never do that. Right. You can just make things safer. You can make people safer. And so, you know, we really, really relied on testing. And obviously, anytime there was an intimacy scene, um, people got, you know, two tests. Um, you know, uh, like a, a rapid test and then obviously their, their PCR. And so we always kind of knew, um, you know, which way the wind was, was blowing. Um, and, and what's very interesting, something that uh, we learned is that um, Tuesdays and, and Wednesdays are, uh, was at one point in time, was the day where you found out what people were doing on the weekends because that's when people would usually pop positive. <laughs> So we were like, okay, no intimacy scenes on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Put it towards, you know, Friday, especially with crowd work, you know. Um, so we did try to limit crowds. And, you know, I would say that instead of making it kind of like completely true to um, reality, um, and that, you know, that there would be like tons and tons of people at a strip club. Um, you know, we we made sure that, you know, by 25 percent, sometimes even 35 percent, we limited how, how many extras were, were there. But then there were those days where we have to kind of, you know, reflect that the club was crunk as hell. And so we had to figure out camera angles um, and layering and moving people around and reusing people. Um, to, to make the club feel way more populated than we actually could have it. You know, and in terms of the, of the logistics of everything, you know, I, I'm curious, you know, it's been about two years since season one launched. Was the plan to bring P-Valley back 
2021 or was is this the two-year delay really because you wanted to wait a little bit when it, until it was more safer until maybe more vaccines were were available etc we were trying to get this sucker out as soon as we possibly possibly could it was just hard i mean let's talk about um just you know sets for example um because of the, the crush on the supply chain, it was hard to build things. So, you know, we wanted to, you know, go in the spring. We wanted to go in the summer. And, you know, production designer just, just couldn't build it because we couldn't get the wood. So people don't think about that. <laughs> it's like, well, we ain't got no set. So we can't, we can't twerk on it. So we're going to have to, you know, wait. And, you know, we had to, you know, push because... You know, there were travel restrictions and, you know, um, visa problems. And it was just like all these real world problems that were triggered by COVID that were really preventing all these obstacles um, for us to, to get this show back to our hangry pink posse. Um, that's what we call our fans. But, yeah, somehow we made it. We, we made it. I mean, I, I wish we could have, you know done it at the end of last uh, year. Um, and also, real talk, it takes a long time to write these scripts just because they're so, they're so good, but also because they're so, <laughs> they're just so, um, the blue, I'll just say this, the blueprint is so specific. And I wanted season two to be a thousand percent better than season one. I'm very much into excellence and pushing yourself and going above and beyond. And I wanted um, bigger dance numbers and I wanted um, to do those camera angles that we didn't get a chance to do. I wanted um, more time with these kind of like bigger um, uh, music performances. I just wanted to go bigger and better. And that also takes time to craft. So, you know, it's like fine wine. It's like, you know, some marinated meat, some barbecue. We just needed time to, you know, get the seasons in. But I, I do think it's definitely well worth the wait. And quite frankly, it's nice to have a little distance from that crazy apex moment that I think we all were living in um, in the spring of 2020. Like I said, I want people to just use this as um, almost like a, a time machine. Um, and luckily, they can jump out of the time machine at, at any moment along the ride. But it's it definitely um, reflected the the mandates and, and everything, but also just like the psychological transformations that I think happen to us as individuals and also to us as a society. How was the writing on the second season different? Because the first season, it was obviously it was springing from your head. It was springing from your play. Everything kind of had to go through you. Did the second season become more collaborative or simply because of the nature of your process? Does everything still have to come through you? Everything comes through me. Yeah. <laughs> we, we we joke about it. Like, oh, protect her. She can't die. <laughs> like, just, and, and I have an amazing writer's room, had a, an amazing writer's room in season one, three writer's rooms in season one. Um, and then season two, like I said, super diverse. Um, but I, the way that I have kind of figured out what my process is, you know, it's very much related to my theater process where you are kind of like the lone 
wolf in your basement office, you know, looking at um, the computer or looking at the page and just trying to pull this, these gems out of thin air. And so what, because we were trying to get the show turned around really, really fast, um, even though it, it, that didn't end up happening, um, I literally came in and I had softly broke pretty much every episode and every person's arc. I had played with um, cards on like a canvas board and I had sat down with my, my dramaturg um, and I just pitched out to him. He's one of the writers on the show, Jocelyn Clark. Pitched out to him like everything I wanted to do, boom, 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 laid it out, laid it out, laid it out. And then I came into the rooms like, okay, you guys, this is what I want to do. It took us two weeks to go through all of my thoughts. I literally spoke every day for five hours as we stepped through everything that I wanted to do. And then at the end of those two weeks, we were like, Tori, you can't do all of this. <laughs> so what you gonna have to do, little mama, uh, is figure out, you know, uh, what, uh, your landing spots for certain characters and try to figure out how um, people are going to intersect or not intersect over the course of season two. And so my writer's room became a kind of um, a good barometer of like what, what, idea was good and what idea was not and then they just helped me rebuild it was almost like a, a another draft the second draft of what was in my head and then we kind of hammered it all down and then we started going episode by episode by episode well given that playwriting is your background and that is a at least initially a more solitary pursuit what have you come to appreciate about having other voices in the room just they make the idea better or they allow you to think about something from a completely different perspective, you know, um, I definitely wanted actual dancers in the room again. Um, and I ended up getting um, two dancers who thought com two completely different things when it came to this one uh, storyline and um, kind of like the, the transformation of this character named Roulette who comes in and she shakes the, uh, the club to its core and, and breaks a lot of Uncle Clifford's rules. Um, and so, you know, and I was grateful to have um, people who were from the world, but also could, you know, really challenge each other and then challenge my initial kind of gut instinct um, because I, they definitely made um, the, the show better. Shout out to Tessa and Janine Dings. <laughs> I want to go back to the handling of certain COVID things, because the show is obviously a show about people exposing themselves, both physically and literally and metaphorically as well. When it comes to masks and the roles that they could play within that world, when did you decide or when did you realize what a good metaphor that could be for everything that was already happening on the show? From the jump. Absolutely. And I wanted to lean into that. You know, last season... Um, everyone was wearing a mask. Everyone was in the pink and, you know, everyone was performing a version of themselves in the figurative sense. Right. And then, boom, you have this literal thing in your hand, tactile. And it says so much about um, what you want to hide, um, how you let people in when you let your guard down. And it's also, I think, an articulation of trust, you know, something that I noticed when I came down south and I went to, you know, hang out with my, my parents in Mississippi. I just assumed that they ain't have it because I'm like, oh, they would tell me, right? They my parents. They would tell me if they ain't got COVID. And so I wouldn't wear a mask around them. 
when they probably the people that should have been wearing that's around the most, right? Um, so all of these um, symbols, I think we articulated over the course of the season when you saw a character kind of, you know, make a choice to wear a mask or not wear a mask because, like I said, they were either hiding parts of themselves or trying to open up. Uh, one storyline that I think viewers are are really going to have a difficult time with, but I think it's it's necessary. It's just the story of domestic abuse that our character, Miss Mississippi, is is going through, where she's, you know, still getting beat at home. And there's this episode later in the season and the scene where she goes to the grocery store and one of the other characters pulls down her mask and boom, we see all these bruises that she's been trying to hide. So a mask for her becomes the ultimate way to survive and lie to the world that everything is okay, when obviously it's not. But you're writing scripts in which X number of characters are wearing masks for X amount of the time. What is the reaction when you tell your directors that you want that? What is the reaction when you tell the sound department that you're going to want that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the directors were always like, okay, we need a mask map. Because, you know, there's a moment during the scene where the person has to take off the mask for whatever reason. I will say there's a lot of eating in season two. Um, There's a lot of kissing in season two. There are other things that you can't do uh, (laughs) with a mask on in season two. So um, even in the writer's room, I was like, we made a list of the things that you can do that you shouldn't be wearing a mask for. So already the blueprint was setting up the directors for success. Um, Sound department wise, you know what? They were okay. They were okay because eventually you're probably going to have to ADR some stuff later on down the road. Anyway, I would say in post-production, it was a challenge because we had to figure out um, how to reflect whatever mask they were wearing on screen. And sometimes, you know, obviously there's some cloth masks that, are, you know, you can like push your your air, your breath through better than others. And then plastic masks are really tricky. Um, But we figured out a system and we did like a test before they came to do their ADR to see which plastic mask would be the best and would make sure that everything was clear or as Uncle would say, clear, um, but but be a a true reflection of, of the sound and the quality of the sound. Yeah, I'm going to spoil something here. So, you know, feel free to interject if, if you don't want this spoiled ahead of, ahead of the, uh, the show dropping. But, you know, Isaiah Washington was such a big part of season one as the mayor of Chukalisa, um, but is written out in the premiere very quickly. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about what led to that decision? So what's crazy is I came in to this whole process with five years in my head um and everybody has a possible exit on this show um our tagline for season two is anybody can get it and and really anybody can get it but um because i took such a big shift from what i was going to do by kind of acknowledging the world i i knew that basically a a king had to be sacrificed um, in order to push our new world over and into onto a a different journey a a different journey onto a different um narrative track um so you know 
from jump, I've always told the actors that the strip club is a, a business that ha- kind of has a revolving door. And so everybody kind of knows that, you know, they may be there for a, a, a long time or they may be there for one episode. Um, and obviously, you know, as the mayor, you would think that someone is going to be there for a while. However, the things that I, I was going to do um, with a particular character had to completely change um, due to the fact that we were honoring the story of COVID. And I'm talking very specifically about the character of, of Andre, his godson. And so because I had to kind of shift um, everything dramaturgically, like I said, that was his kind of uh, way to be brought back into the fold, to return back to Chuckalisa and to embark on this journey of, um, you know, uh, self-realization and purpose that has always been necessary to that particular character's journey. To, to me, Andre Watkins is more of a major character and the mayor was a supporting character to his journey. So, um, yeah, it, COVID, I think, just, you know, threw the cards up in the air. And I just kind of, once they, they landed, I just, you know, followed the bones that were in front of me. Yeah. but And, you know, I just want to fo- have a quick follow up here. You know, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you had a five season plan for the show originally. And then obviously COVID changed all of that. Where do you... Where do you see the future of the show now? Do you still have that five season? Is no. the plan you had for season two something you could do for season three, or is it completely different? No, I have I have no thoughts now. <laughs> <laughs> I know you, and I know that's that's not not true. That's not true. You know me. You know me now. Um, so I do have some thoughts. However, because of the pandemic, I'm like, what go happen next? Is the aliens coming? Like what? I don't know, y'all. I don't know. So while I have a narrative track that I would like to follow, I got to be open. I got to be flexible. I, I mean, it, it might be the pink on Mars if these aliens come next week. I don't know. So also, I'd watch I, that show. I would, too. I would, too. So I'm just, um, I, I'm praying that we get a season three. Fingers crossed. You know, I got to, you know, put a a lucky charm under my bed, like whatever to to kind of draw that possibility to me. I would love to to have it because I do think in a weird way, I'm just beginning to dig into the stories of these characters. I love them so much. Like I really think of them oddly as my little family inside of my head. I I get to, you know, visit them. I'm I'm very lucky that I, I get to, you know, really visit uh, Uncle Clifford and then chill out with Ernestine and go into Little Murder's Trap House in my head. Um, and I just want to be able to to do that for a while. Um, I actually remember on set, you know, seeing there's these, there's, there was a character that we were like, mm, they may get it by the end of the season. But then I saw the chemistry between that person and another person, and another person. And I was like, well, knowing what you do about how season two ends, can you say that it, you know, whether it ends with kind of a, a, a roadmap for what season three could be, or is it very much a contained season? It's one of those seasons that feels um, final, but there's definitely a, a cliffhanger. It's I always say that a good season has a great beginning, middle and end. Any any good chapter of a book has a great beginning, middle and end. But it's definitely a part of a much bigger narrative that I want to tell over the course of I don't know how many years or how many seasons. Like I said, my hope has always been five minimum, 
But, you know, we shall see. You know, my bosses have to, you know, look at some numbers. So. <laughs> I want to go back to the idea of the hypothetical version of the show, which involves aliens coming down. Not because I necessarily want to talk about the aliens, but because this is a show that is very grounded in this in this place that you've created. But the first season, there was a mystery that was the backdrop of the entire season. It was it was very genre-y as a, as a sort of plot mechanism that you had. And this season... Um, there are hints at sort of supernatural or spiritual things manifesting. So what have you learned about how much strangeness, how much genre material about what you can put onto this world that you've created and what it can sustain? It's interesting. I try not to think about, you know, particular genres or rules when it comes to my world. Cause I do think, you know, Chuckalusa, Mississippi um, is a place that, is full of strangeness and 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 does hold you know everything from vampires to, to hoodoo men and hoodoo women. Um, I'm not bringing the vampires in; they they can stay. But this idea of spirit and spirituality, especially as it comes out of African American culture, is something that I definitely did want to articulate and reflect in in my show. And quite frankly, I have that's my thing. Like, if you have been to a Katori Hall play, whether it's Hoodoo Love, which was my first play, or The Mountaintop, I embrace spirit because a lot of us do. You know, my grandmother, she is with me, right? I don't think that she is in some other place or up in some cloud. Like, she she walks with me, her energy and the things that she taught me and the food ways and and and, and the, the magic of... Uh, of our culture, you know, it stays in my fingertips and it stays in my heart. And so I wanted to make sure that people understood that as a real thing, nothing that is hokey um, or, or scary even, even though, you know, the way that we kind of shot it is like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Um, but this this idea of spirit and like I said, hoodoo specifically, which is this magical belief system um, that often a lot, a lot of people down south, a lot of black people down south believe in still to this day. Um, it's just a, a way to honor our past and to honor that Africanness that unfortunately um, w w was taken from us, whether it's, you know, our language or recipes or whatever. Um, it's just something that I always, always want to make sure that I, I crystallize for the people who are living today and looking at Pea Valley. And it's interesting, right? Because one wouldn't think that, oh, I'm going to go down to the valley and all of a sudden episode two got hoodoo in it. <laughs> it's just like, what? Um, but I grew up believing in that. And so I think that obviously whatever an artist creates is definitely a reflection of them and their own particular belief system. And so I was just like, well, why the hell not? And I actually think people are going to feel seen um, and, 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 and made to feel as if they don't have to bear any shame for believing in that Africanness that has been passed down over the generations. And, and the sort of the folkloric aspect of the storytelling here, it really comes to the surface, and you can spoil this as much as or as little as you want, in the fifth episode, which really does bring the fairy tale and folklore subtext 
right up to the top. Did you always know you wanted to tell a story where where you were just simply, not simply would be the wrong word here, where you were telling a folk story right there on the surface as opposed to burying it? So what's so interesting, episode five is this uh, the story that is centered around Miss Mississippi uh, about our dear Keyshawn. And we, you know, float back into the past with her. And so, you know, fairy tales have always been such a, a, a favorite uh, of mine, fables um, as well. Um, but what's so interesting is that we knew that we wanted to kind of float back into the past. But what we didn't know is... We didn't know that Uncle Clifford was going to actually narrate the tale. What ended up happening was episode five was our hardest episode to shoot because we had to deal with so much shit. It, I, to the point where I'm like, is there a God, y'all? What is happening? I mean, we ended up being banned from a school system because they found out that we were doing a show about strippers and so that scene where, you know, we're back at high school. We had to like, you know, beg, bar and steal to get a football field and, and uh, a, a hallway because, you know, folks where we were shooting were not having it. We ended up losing the exterior because this guy found out, yeah, it was a show about strippers and he, you know, was very um, a morally upstanding citizen and was like, I refuse to allow you to use, you know, my front porch to shoot your show. Um, shut down, uh, location dropout, uh, someone got sick, this person got sick. I was like, how in the hell are we going to finish this episode? It was an episode that was um, 90% out, not in, so we were on location. So it was like we were doing a TV show and then all of a sudden we did a movie in the middle of it and then <laughs> we were doing a TV show with our sets. So it was the hardest, hardest episode and what ended up happening was our um, transitions, visual transitions that were flipping us back from the, the past to the future, we could never get them. And, and then even the director, because we had to push the shoot, she couldn't come back to finish her episode. So we had to rely on three other directors to come in and finish. Dude, COVID was crazy. It was crazy. And so I was looking in post. I was like, oh, my God, the pieces, the pieces. We just got pieces. Y'all, how we going to do this? <laughs> and um, I was like, ha, 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 We've been telling a fairy tale. It's a fable. Uncle Clifford has the best voice and is our kind of fairy godmother, especially to this particular character. She should tell this story. And so I remember writing this copy before I went off to have a baby. We'll talk about that later. Writing this copy. Um, and I remember Nico came in and he saw the episode and he just infused it with this kind of lilt and, and love and language. And his voice ended up bringing all the pieces together because we, we had to drop some scenes as well um, because of, of COVID. Oh, that's, that, that sounds like complicated storytelling, I guess. I guess. <laughs> not, not the way you want to make an episode of television, or anything for that matter. No, it was crazy. I, I want to talk a little bit more about Chuck Elisa as, as a place, because you're creating this 
Faulknerian city all of your own in Mississippi. And this season does get into some of the local politics. It gets into the local economy because we get to see throughout basically what COVID has done to, you know, a, a small city in a place that maybe can't sustain two years shutting, shutting down entirely. What has it been like for you to expand that world? Because you started off with something that was that was stage bound and now it's growing and growing and growing. Yeah, I always say that Chuckalisa is the daughter of Memphis, which is my hometown, and Jackson. Um, and, you know, it's very similar, but not exactly like Tunica, Mississippi, which is where um, all those casinos are. My mom actually used to work at the casino for, for many, many years. And I just knew that, you know, while... The club, the the pank, um, you know, was this small space. It was just this big metaphor for the world in general. And I was just really grateful to be able to expand and 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 get outside of its doors. And I always remind people, like the show ain't called The Pank. It's called Pea Valley. It's about a place, an environment, and how that environment um, you know, shapes. Um, hurts, builds up all different types of people. You know, I love when you go into our fictional club and we have all our, our extras and we we try so hard to make sure that everyone is reflected. Well, everybody who black, because uh, it is a you know predominantly black space. But like you know, you see the different socioeconomic levels. You you see different you know skin shades. Um, women, the fact that women are coming to the club to applaud and throw money at women. You know, I think, you know, that's interesting. You don't, you don't see that as, as much in strip clubs where they're, where the, um, the dancers are predominantly white. It tends to be just like a bunch of men, but for some reason, you know, strip clubs down South, it's become this social hub. And I think it, it uh, I think the reason why is because, I feel as though strip club culture, particularly down south, kind of extends from our juke joint culture as well. Um, I've been trying to figure out, I'm like, why is it that in this in this space, men and, and women, you know, they they're both here to enjoy this performance. And I think, you know, they're, sometimes they're they're there for the same reason and sometimes for different reasons. But like I say, it's definitely this social hub. Um, but I, yeah, I just I'm very interested in continuing to to go outside, even Chuckalisa. I mean, the fact that episode five is mostly set in a land far, far away, which is Atlanta <laughs> and not Chuckalisa, you know, um, Chuckalisa, you know, is is a lot of people's home base. But Atlanta is this kind of like dreamy, um, you know, fairy tale place for a lot of our fictional Chuckalisans. So I'm really glad that we've been able to continue um, going out, out, out. It's like this little concentric circle where we started at the club and now, you know, we're spreading our wings to all, you know, parts of the South. And you mentioned earlier that the summer and into the fall of 2020, it wasn't just COVID. It was also the protests in the street, the summer of sort of the, of the reckoning, as it were. And you definitely use that in this season. But it struck me that you didn't 
want to, it seems, directly evoke the specific names. Like you didn't want people talking about George Floyd by name because you knew what they were going to, you know, you can tell what people are talking about, but you didn't want to say it out loud. What was the thought process on that? The unfortunate thing is there's so many names. There's too many names. Men, women, queer, black folk. The, the list goes on and on and on. And it's interesting, you know, even though when people come to season two, they're going to be like, oh, this is 2020. You know, we put this placard at the beginning of episode one. It's Chuckalisa, Mississippi, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The unfortunate thing, particularly about racial injustice, police brutality, it's been so cyclical. It keeps on happening over and over and over and over again. And so for me, you know, it was important to for the the victim to remain nameless so that everybody could put their brother, their sister, their father, whoever in place of that unnamed victim. Um, and ultimately, I ended up naming the episode of Demetrius um, for two reasons. You know, there's the roulette, um, a new character that was the name of her brother. Um, but that was also the name of a family member who actually was killed uh, during that moment, not by police brutality, but, you know, via gun violence. Um, something that I tend to do in all of my work is I, I often name a character um, after a family member in order to um, pay homage to that, that family member, because I think regular black folks, we don't get statues too often. And so for me, words and stories are the statues that I can leave behind. And then you ended the, ep and then you ended the episode with the title card that actually gives the names. So how, how many names are on those title cards? Was it as many as you could fit into two cards or? It was, many, it was uh, well, it's interesting. We, there's two sites that had basically made a uh, compiled a list. Um, I think uh, I would have to, to, to triple check, but it's definitely hundreds. Uh, of names, which that it's even one is too many, right? It's very striking. It's very striking, and it serves its purpose as being very striking. Yeah, well, no real good way to move on uh, from from that. But uh, I know we are running short on time here, and I just wanted to ask in in a larger. Oh, I <laughs> but in a bigger picture, you know, you've been now with your Lionsgate overall deal. Congratulations on that, too, for more than a year. You know, when you think about your development slate, you know, do you, are you someone that wants to kind of be in the, the Greg Berlanti world where you're juggling a bunch of shows at once? Or are you more kind of in the, you know, the Damon Lindelof, Vince Gilligan of, of the, our industry where it's kind of a one show at a time? I think I could be both. Um and what I mean by that is I have so many ideas, too many ideas, probably. Um, but I'm also a low-key control freak. So that thing of things kind of extending from me and me making all the decisions, that's very real. But I do know that that's not sustainable. So I would say, you know, if I get a season three or uh, go to work on another show somewhere else, I would love to... Um, train up these youngins that are, you know, bright and they ain't got no children and they got time to spare and to burn. 
Um, and they want to learn. Because, like, I ain't going to be here forever. This job is tiring. Show pregnant? Ooh, child. Mm-mm. Can't, nobody can't do this forever. So, uh, I want to pass the baton, so to speak. But I do know that acutely in the next couple of years, I probably do need to focus on, like, if, you know, there is a third season of P-Valley, like, you know, one more season. And hopefully during that time, I can kind of, I can pass off my skill set to the next generation uh, of of showrunners because I think they're, they're space and they're so needed. And I know that there's some voices that are super unique like mine that I, I really want to cultivate and make sure they get a shot and a chance. Um, so, yeah, it's like I, I love me some Vince and I love me some Berlanti. So I take a little piece of both of them. Yeah. And, you know, so many shows. I mean, I always when I heard your response to that, it, it made me think of what Killing Eve did where they changed intentionally changed showrunners every single season because they wanted to give someone who is a first time showrunner a chance to actually do that job and have that be a stepping stone for them in their careers too, you know, and what, you know, others like, like Ava have done with giving directors a first chance on, on some of her shows, et cetera. So really well done. Yeah. It's a dream. Tori, um, we do like to close these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying outside of cuts of your own show? Of course. I know, right? I'm still working on 210. Um, I directed that one while I was pregnant, by the way. Uh, it was, it was, it was a lot. Um, so what I'm watching, um, I have been watching Atlanta. Like a lot of people have been watching. And that last episode, um, it, it, it steps into um, sex worker land, which I was like, oh, that's such a cool, you know, way in and totally unexpected. So I really, really appreciated that that last uh, episode of I think season three, right? Yeah, season three. Um, and I love Gamora. I don't know if anybody watching that with me on HBO Max. I love that show. It's one of those shows where I'm like, damn it. I wish I would have thought of that. It's just so good. The characters. Uh, I could just, you know, spend all my time in that world. Well, Katori, thank you so much for joining us again. And congratulations on all the success and uh, hopefully fingers and toes cross for season three. Thank you. Season two of P-Valley premieres Friday, June 3rd on Stars. Subsequent episodes will air Sunday nights on Stars. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got The Boys on Amazon, This Is Going to Hurt on AMC+, Irma Vep on HBO. You just heard our interview with Katori Hall about season two of P-Valley on Stars, And maybe leading off this week in Critics' Corner, debuted last week, but Disney Plus and Lucasfilm refused to send out screeners to anybody. So consider this the delayed review for Obi-Wan on Disney+. Dan, let's go. What you got? Okay, you you want us to start with Obi-Wan, and that is totally fair, because it did indeed premiere last week and couldn't talk about it then. Uh, for the record, I have not finished the third episode, which is the one that aired this week, so there will be no spoilers for the third episode. You can relax if you are nervous about that. There will, however, be some spoilers, I suppose, for the first two episodes that aired last week, but I don't know, nothing too, too serious, I don't think. I mean... You know, it's all relative. Anyway, so I, I mostly enjoyed Obi-Wan Kenobi in a very, very general sense because I appreciated how simple it was. I feel as if with a lot of the Marvel shows and a lot of the Star Wars shows, 
there's a lot of universe building and there's a lot of mythology and it has to be spelled out in hefty amounts of exposition. And sometimes I can find those to be a little bit exhausting. I find that I probably jump into these shows better when I can simply just jump into them. In this case, all that was required was a, a clip reel from the prequels to remind me of the various different things that happened with Ewan McGregor and with Hayden Christensen in those three movies, many of which I repressed for various and sundry reasons. And the series itself is fairly clean and neat. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by, again, Ewan McGregor, on Tatooine. He's gone into hiding. He is being sort of sketchy and basically spying on young Luke, who he gave to his his aunt, uh, his aunt, Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, and that was a thing that happened way back in whatever the last prequel was. And now he's kind of avoiding being a Jedi, because being a Jedi is bad. He's kind of working an assembly line job. He goes home each night. He eats his reconstituted stew. It's a little bit sad, and it kind of sets up the Obi-Wan Kenobi who we met in The New Hope, uh, where he was basically full-on hermit. And there are obviously steps between there and here, and that's kind of where we are. But like basically what the plot of The Mandalorian was and what a lot of the plot of Book of Boba Fett was, is there's a fair amount of whether your point of reference chooses to be Lone Wolf and Cub, whether it happens to be... Um, I, I compared it on Twitter to the Denzel Washington, Dakota Fanning movie, Man on Fire. There's a lot of enigmatic, grouchy man with the past protecting youthful hope for the future kind of action to this. And so they did not init initially go out of their way to spoil that the series was largely Obi-Wan Kenobi on a mission watching out for a young Princess Leia. And, I, you know, I guess I kind of appreciate that, but I, it doesn't seem like the secrecy was necessarily required. I don't know that it really helped the show in any particular way. But I, I mostly did enjoy the interactions with Ewan McGregor and Vivian Lyra Blair as the young Princess Leia. I, there, there have been a lot of conversations online about how old Princess Leia is supposed to be here and whether it's actually all that clear how old the show thinks she is versus the actress thinks she is, etc. I, I agree without any question that when she said that she was 10, my reaction was, no, that doesn't seem right at all. She looks and sounds significantly younger than that. She has sort of has the mindset of a six-year-old, and that's fine. Doesn't seem 10 at all. Whatever. <laughs> Some people didn't particularly like her performance. I, I thought she was fully persuasive as a precocious and somewhat annoying child. Uh, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all. I, and I thought that the interactions with Obi-Wan and young Princess Leia were a little bit cute, sometimes a little bit funny, occasionally a little annoying, but in a totally reasonable way, etc. Now, there are lots of good things about the first couple episodes that have kind of gotten, I don't want to say lost, but maybe upstaged by this week's conversations involving Star Wars fans, and not all Star Wars fans. It really needs to be emphasized. A small subset of Star Wars fans being gross as fuck, pardon my French, and being racist as fuck, and deciding to take out their dislike for a, a character 
for no particular reason, I really don't understand, uh, in various bullying forms on the actress who plays that character, that would be Moses Ingram. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm baffled on one hand in the sense that having watched these episodes, at no point did I ever think that the character of the third sister or Riva or however you want to put it was in any way a bad part of this pilot. I sort of the idea that of all the things one could pick on that you would pick on that character. It, I don't really get it other than if not racism and sexism straight up, just general gatekeeping that tends to come from white males and therefore strongly resembles racism and sexism. I don't think that most of the people who watched the show and most of the people who are in the Star Wars fandom are racist or sexist, but some certainly are. I would say that's probably realistically true about just about any fandom. Um, and it sounds as if a lot of the stuff that Moses Ingram has been getting on social media has been really gross and everyone should know better. It's okay to not like a character on a TV show. It's in fact completely okay not to like this character on a TV show. But why would you go on social media and directly address the person playing it and tell them how much you hate them and particularly in racist and sexist terms? Why would you do that unless you were a garbage person? Why, L Leslie? Listen, listen I'm, I'm going to stand on my soapbox for a second here. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, especially if it's directed at a child or especially if you want to be racist as fuck or homophobic as fuck or anything as fuck. Just shut your mouth and get off social media if you can't have anything nice to say. And, you're, and, and if you decide if you want to be a troll, go call your troll friends and go party under a bridge somewhere. But just leave the personal attacks for another place. Come on. It, it, it's, it's like the basic Human decency. Treat people the way you want to be treated. And if your tweet isn't in line with that, you don't need to tweet it. That's or, it. Or just don't, or just don't try. How about just don't tag the person? How about that is like the bare minimum of basic decency in a case like that? Because guess what? If you don't like something, you're entitled to not like it. Because if we weren't, I don't know what I would do for a living. But why would you feel like Moses Ingram needs to know how much you dislike her character and the vaguely coded ways and reasons in which you don't like the character. That is the part that baffles me. If you don't like the character, that's fine. If you don't like the show, who cares? It's just a Star Wars show. Don't like it. But don't attack people. This yeah. is their job. This is their livelihood. And it's a, this is a kid. Come on. Basic human decency, people. That's it. That's it. Moses Ingram's not the kid. The The kid is the kid playing Princess Leia. And people were also, incidentally, being really mean to the kid. Yeah, I haven't seen the show yet. But <laughs> also, I just got spoiled because I forgot to tune out for this part. I but didn't spoil it. The whole point me, is, it didn't I, spoil I didn't know anything. that there was a young Princess Leia. I, I've avoided spoilers for all of it, but I just got completely spoiled. But that's okay. I, I knew that. I know that's it comes with the territory here. But the basic point of what I'm saying is it's h harder to be mean than it is to be kind. That's all. Twitter suggests otherwise. Anyway, uh, so yes, don't bully people on Twitter because you didn't like their TV show. It's and just don't not. bully people in real life either. That, that also probably fair. Be nice to each other. Be excellent to each other. Come on. Have we learned nothing? Uh, yes. So that was uh, that was Obi-Wan Kenobi, which, again, I think is fine. I'm you know, I don't know that I feel as if it's got eight seasons in it, but since it's being designed at least currently as a six-episode show, 
sure, seems fine. I'll watch more. I look forward to watching episode three in the next day or two. And I really didn't spoil much for you. It's pretty much right there. Uh, <laughs> um, anywho, so continuing along with other stuff, um, this is going to hurt or going to hurt is on AMC Plus, and we've talked a lot about sort of the AMC Plus various things and some of the shows that AMC Plus has had, mostly international acquisitions. Some of them have been have been pretty decent. I loved Anna, the post-apocalyptic Italian YA show. I thought that was great. Um, I thought that the adult puppety type show from the creator of Patriot that was on AMC Plus and eventually played on AMC. I'm blanking on what it was called, but it doesn't really matter. I thought that was very good. And this is very solid. It premiered on BBC One and got very, very strong reviews. And it stars uh, Ben Wishaw, who is always fantastic and is fantastic here as a young doctor. He is playing series creator Adam Kay, basically, not to be confused with Adam McKay. Totally different people. Uh, and he is a young doctor working at a National Health Service hospital in London. He's working in the OBGYN department. And so he's kind of discovering the faults of the system, the difficulties of the job, and the difficulties of his own personality. It is a show that if you are squeamish about things reproductive-related, probably you're going to want to avoid. It is a show with let's just say, more on-screen C-sections than most other shows on television. And if that is the kind of prospect that gets you queasy, you probably want to avoid this one. Similarly, if various things prolapsing that aren't supposed to prolapse, if that is the thing that you find disturbing, you might want to avoid this. There, There's a lot of mother in jeopardy and baby in jeopardy drama that is simply goes with the territory, and you have to accept that, and it is delivered in serious-minded and harrowing fashion. The show is also fairly funny. There are definite hints of fleabag to it, and not just because the Ben Wishaw character spends a lot of time talking directly to the camera. It is another great performance by Ben Wishaw, who is almost always tremendous, and this is a just a great vehicle for him. And a lot of the supporting performances are very, very good. Uh, and Bika Maud, who plays the young doctor who is Ben Wishaw's character's mentee, I think she's fantastic. I don't think that the show always knows what to do with her character, and I think I had problems with some of the directions that it goes with her, but I thought the performance was wonderful. You have people like Alex Jennings, who's just a great British theater actor, um, and he plays the main character's supercilious boss. I think he is excellent. Harriet Walter, who people know from all sorts of things and who is always fantastic. She is great as the main character's very, very chilly mother. It's it's a really, really solid show. It is much better than any medical drama that broadcast TV has done for years, honestly. And so if it is a genre you like and a genre that doesn't make you extremely queasy, you probably want to check this one out. It is it is not COVID-timed or themed, but, you know, it's just a reminder of doctors are important, it's tough to be a doctor, etc. But it also doesn't sugarcoat the fact that the main character is very, very flawed in many ways, and certainly Ben Wishaw's performance does not do that either. Continuing along, I've watched three episodes of The Boys, which happens to be what's premiering this weekend, so... 
that's how much I've watched. It's very convenient. Uh, the Boys is not a show I like as much as other people. I, I feel like its moves are already, after three seasons, fairly repetitive to me. And I find that its sense of satire is more broad and superficial than I like. I think that what the show has as its backdrop, a world in which superheroes are real and excessively commodified and increasingly gross and inhuman and have lost track of their job to be super, I think that's all very good. And I think a lot of the performances in the show uh, consistently make it worth watching. I just think that it's really just not a very smart show. And I think it's a show that is often very, very glib about its satire and about its dark undertones in ways where there's room to be significantly more intelligent. It's a show that really and truly relies much too heavily on, ha ha ha, that's a direct reference we're making, and if you get it, you're going to think it's extremely funny, rather than writing actual jokes about it. So, like, for example, in the very first episode, as people who watch the show know, the main characters, as part of Vought Industries, they make movies that are basically propaganda films. And there's a joke about how the movie that they did uh, was reshot largely by Tony Gilroy and not by the director of the movie. And that's not a joke. It, that's just a reference to the fact that Tony Gilroy reshot scenes of a Star Wars movie, and people know that. There's no actual satire or joke construction or thought to it. It's just a reference. And if you get it, you go, ha, ha, ha. But it's not very clever. And I wish it were significantly more clever. But I consistently think that Anthony Starr, Anthony Starr is doing a very, very intense, rather terrifying performance as Homelander. And he's, if he's been terrifying before, he's been, he's even more terrifying in these episodes. Uh, if Chase Crawford was gross before as the deep, he's getting even grosser in these episodes. Uh, there are a lot of characters on the show that there are simply too many characters and some of them just vanish entirely. So it's good to see uh, Jesse T. Usher getting a little bit more screen time this season as A-Train, but perhaps as a direct result, Dominique McElligot as Queen Maeve is largely missing this season. And uh, so the there are a lot of people in this show, sometimes too many, and sometimes they really do slip through the cracks in ways that I find disappointing because I would like to stick with the performances that I like and whatever. Uh, in terms of the new characters or new performances, so far in the first couple episodes, Jensen Ackles doesn't have much to do as, uh, as Soldier Boy. I, I guess probably he will have more to do. Um, he does have one very funny scene that I surely will not go anywhere near spoiling. But what I'm going to say is that if you like the kind of gross, puerile thing that the boys does, and I like it sometimes, it's a lot more of that this season. It's a lot more of people exploding, etc. The very first scene of the season uh, definitely features characters going a place that the show has never had a character go in the past, um, and you will definitely squirm in your seat and perhaps be wonderfully grossed out, and there are moments like that, and that is what the show goes for. So, yeah, the boys. Uh, I look forward to seeing what our colleague Angie Han, who likes the show more than I do, will say about it. Um, continuing along, HBO is premiering Irma Vep which is a mini-series, and it is premiering on the 6th, and it is based on the film by Olivier Assayas, 
I am sure I'm pronouncing all parts of that name incorrectly. Uh, and it, the 1996 film, which is available on HBO Max and is a really, really good movie, I strongly recommend it, is about a French director remaking the classic silent French uh, serial Le Vampire, which has nothing to do with actual vampires. Uh, it's a bunch of thieves who call themselves vampires. Don't worry about it. Just don't expect blood sucking. Uh, this is just me giving people what they need to know. It's a really good movie and, and it's worth watching. This, that was also made by Olivier Asayas. This is continuing along those lines in that it is also about a French filmmaker making a movie about Le Vampire, and he, in this case, previously made an indie film about Le Vampire. It's very much up its own butt. Uh, let's just say that much. And it stars uh, Alicia Vikander as the American actress who is starring in the film and wearing the the very, very formidable, formative and formidable catsuit that, uh, that was kind of the fetish object in the movie. And it's basically, it's a lot of Hollywood satire, albeit set in Paris, Discussion of film industry, though, more than satire. And so it's it's kind of a complimentary text to the current season of Barry or whatever. But if you are a film fan, there's a lot of discussion of evolutions of French cinema and evolutions of storytelling. And because this miniseries is about making a limited series out of Le Vampire, there's, co there's commentary about algorithms and about streaming services. There's a joke about Emily in Paris, etc. I, I liked it. It's very, very loose and moves along at a strange pace wherein it does seem to go by quickly and then nothing seems to have happened. And you're like, okay, sure, that was fine. Uh, I think it, this is unquestionably the most I've ever liked Alicia Vikander in anything. I, I've thought that she was a good actress in things before, but this is a very relaxed, easygoing performance. And I think that it does exactly what it's supposed to do. The, the cast is largely international actors, though, Kerry Brownstein pops up, few other actors. If you've seen other Asayas films, a lot of his kind of repertory company pops up. I, I don't know that you need to have seen the, mo the movie, but I think it helps to have seen the movie. So maybe check it out on HBO Max. That would give you some idea if you can skip it. You know, you can watch the 100-minute version and then not watch the 8-episode version. Or you could decide, sure, I want to see this season again. So... Yeah, I I enjoyed it and I look forward to seeing more because I kind of want to see where it goes thematically. I kind of want to see where it takes the discussion of what's happening in the storytelling industry. So we'll see. I like it. That is uh, that is Irma Vep. And then finally, you just heard our terrific interview with Katori Hall, creator of P-Valley. And the second season premieres, as I said, on Friday, and then subsequent episodes will air in its normal Sunday slot. But you can obviously always watch episodes on demand and all of that, so on your own schedule. The first season was in my top ten for two years ago, and this second season is is longer, so it's ten episodes, and I've seen five, and it's off to an extremely promising start. I, I think that, honestly, this is probably the best I've seen a, shoo a show do of dealing with what 2020 was like. And it's not dealing with 2020 and 
COVID and the summer of racial reckoning from a perspective of a police drama, from a perspective of a medical drama. It is how does this business, specifically focusing on a strip club in, in Chuckalisa, Mississippi, um, but how does, how does this particular business function in a world in which you can't separate people by six feet conveniently, in which wearing masks kind of defeats the entire ethos of a place in which people are stripping down for entertainment, etc. And I think it has a lot to say about that. I think it has a lot to say about blue-collar life in this fictional Mississippi Delta town. I don't know that this season has quite the same propulsion that the mystery involving Haley or Autumn's uh, arrival in Chuckalisa and the mysterious money that she was getting via wire, wire fraud and the flashbacks she was having to a mysterious hurricane. I feel like those things and their resolution gave the first season a propulsion that the second season is still slowly looking for, but that could have to do with the fact that it's only the first half of the season that we've seen. Uh, I think that there are still great performances here. Uh, Nico Anon would be an easy answer as Uncle Clifford. I think that is a terrific performance, but really I think it's a, it's an amazing cast because they were cast for a wide variety of reasons. Some of them have to be able to do varying degrees of athletic things on a pole. Others of them have to be able to be doubled in by someone who's doing those things, etc. But I really think it's a, it's an ensemble of, of very, very strong performances with a lot of, you know, somewhat recognizable people maybe in the background. Loretta Devine pops up as Uncle Clifford's grandmother, and she is fantastic because Loretta Devine is always fantastic because you can add Loretta Devine to anything. It makes things better. Um, <laughs> I think that the show simply has a voice that is not like any other voice on television, and the show's setting is not like any other show on television, and it is a real pleasure to settle back into this world, to be surrounded by the soundtrack, to be surrounded by the vernacular uh, of both Katori Hall's particular profane voice, but also of the voice of this strip club and the characters who inhabit it. Uh, I, I, don't I don't know necessarily after five episodes if I'm going to think that the second season is the equal or better than the first, but it definitely is a world that I was happy to return to after all of this time. It was, it was good to settle in and, and be back in this world. So uh, that would be P Valley. So as the quick rehash, I talked a little bit about Obi-Wan, which made me mostly happy, not like wildly enthusiastic or anything, but mostly happy. And also, as we said, stop bullying people on social media. Guess what? None of our listeners are bullying anyone on social media. I, you you guys are, are better than that. Uh, but some people are not. So just don't do it. But I'm talking to no one because our listeners don't do things like that. Um, this is going to hurt on AMC Plus. Great Ben Wishaw performance, uh, kind of harrowing reproductive health drama, but still also timely. Definitely worth watching. The Boys, if you like The Boys, it's every bit as squishy and explodey as it has been in the past. Um, and yay. I enjoyed Irma Vep, really liked Alicia Vikander, and also, I also really liked the original movie. So check them both out. That's HBO. And finally, last but definitely not least, great to have P Valley back. Hope you enjoyed our interview with uh, Katori Hall. It's just a, a special and unique show. And 
worth paying attention to. And you can certainly catch up because I don't think either the interview or this review really spoiled anything other than it's really, really good. You should check it out. And unlike anything else you'll see on TV. True that. Yep. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV hyphen reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. It does help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on Twitter. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, what you'd like to hear more of, what you'd like to hear less of, etc., etc. And if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we've gotten a few since last week as well, and we can always appreciate having more, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Life's better with American Family Insurance. Because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.